I think one of the great truths about psychology is that the bad is more powerful than the good. Hmm. The bad is more of a motivator than the good. Um, you know, people call it, talk about it in terms of the negativity bias, where uh, we're more drawn to focus on the negative. We're more worried about the negative. And it kind of makes sense. Like, suppose you could for the next, you know, hour, you can get anything in the world you want. That'd be great. That'd be very, very pleasing. But now suppose for an hour, you could get the worst possible things that you don't want, um, you know, which ultimately I think would end in your fiery death. That'd be really bad. In fact, that would be worse than the good hour would be, would be good. You know, all sorts of good things could happen, but okay, they're good things. But the bad things, which involve like the, the horrific death of you and everybody you love are much worse. And so I think the motivation we have to avoid things is always going to be stronger than the motivation to get things. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 101. And this episode is with Paul Bloom, who is Brooks and Suzanne Reagan, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University and Professor of Psychology at the University of Toronto. So I first came across Paul on his friend Sam Harris's podcast when I mistakenly and I'm pretty sure totally anachronistically conflated him with Harold Bloom and was amazed that the literary critic whose work I had so profited from in reading James Joyce was also a renowned psychologist. And of course, that wasn't actually Paul, though he's written so widely that I wouldn't be surprised to discover that he has a nice literary criticism career going on as well. But Paul works uh, quite broadly, I think it's fair to say, in psychology. Uh, he studies how children and adults make sense of the world with a special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, and art. And Paul's first paper, his first public published paper, was actually with Steven Pinker, who was the guest or my guest on the last episode of Robinson's podcast. And in this paper, uh, Natural Language and Natural Selection, they wrote on human language and evolution. And I think we actually talked about that a bit in my uh, my conversation with Steve. But Paul is the author of seven books, uh, most recently of Psych, The Story of the Human Mind, uh, some of the topics of which constitute the subject of this episode. So more particularly, uh, Paul and I discuss Freud's legacy in contemporary psychology. And Freud is a figure that I'm very, very interested in, who is not in vogue at all in contemporary psychology. So that was really fun for me to get Paul's perspective on this. And then we also talk about mental illness, the roots of motivation, uh, human rationality and irrationality, which incidentally, I also think goes nicely with the, the topic of that last episode with Steve. And then we also go briefly into the work of Susan Carey, who was Paul's advisor and who recently retired from Harvard. And Paul also has recently been producing a truly fantastic and for me, really helpful podcast with his friend and colleague, uh, David Pizarro. 
It's also called Psych, and it covers many of the topics in introductory courses to psychology. And as you can tell, it comes very, very highly recommended for me, as does the book Psych, which is super wide-ranging and informative. And there's a link to both the book and the podcast in, in the description, as well as to Paul's website, which is paulbloom.net, and to Paul's Twitter, and he's Paul Bloom at Yale. So Paul is, I mean, he was really just a, a joy to speak to because he was so sweet and nice to me as a psychology outsider. And after these two conversations with Paul and Steve and how fascinating they were, they it makes me wonder whether I chose the the wrong avenue to go through academia because psychology is so endlessly fascinating. But then I realized, you know, part of the great thing about philosophy is that I can dip my fingers into all of the proverbial academic cookie jars. And so it's great that uh, Paul, this is a funny thing to say, it was great that Paul was willing to let me stick my <laughs> my fingers in his cookie jar. But okay, uh, enough of that. I also have to mention that reviews, comments, likes, subscribes, these are endlessly appreciated. I also have a, another channel on YouTube and Twitch called Robinson Eats in which I eat ice cream every morning. And it's very fun if you want to, if you want to talk to me, that's actually how Paul uh, came across the episode, the, my, my podcast. He's just a huge fan of Robinson eats. Uh, but anyway, uh, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Paul and recording this introduction. Psych is your seventh book. You've written others on language and child development, on the psychology of pleasure, good and evil, good and evil, uh, suffering and meaning, compassion and rationality. But the subtitle of Psych is the story of the human mind, and as the title suggests, I mean it really, really runs the gamut on topics in human psychology. And as I looked at the trajectory of these sixth and then the seventh book. I was wondering why it was this topic that you chose next to write about. Was it a matter of stitching together everything you've been thinking and writing about over the course of your career? You know, it's a good question. It, it, it was a pandemic book. Um, and I had taught this, I, I had this online course, Introduction to Psychology on Coursera, which I, 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 I filmed to people at Yale. And it comes with transcripts of the lectures. And I thought, wouldn't it be a nice thing if I just put together these, um, these transcripts, make a short book called Introduction to Psychology? You know, people seem to like the course, get, get the word out, and it would take me a few months. So as you hear, I'll, I'll, this, this is the book, and the, the thickness <laughs> yeah. is worth noting. Um, so I started with the Freud chapter, and it took me, you know, took me 40 minutes, cut and paste it. This is genius. This is easy. And then I reread it, and it's so flat. There's, and so I started adding to it. And then a month later, it was a lot bigger. And then I realized, I, and then I sort of fell into the idea of writing a, bit, a fairly big book on all the psychology. But it was a lot of fun to write. 
it, it does put together stuff from my previous book, but you know, I got to write chapters and stuff I hadn't thought of very much, like clinical psychology or um, Skinner, you know, uh, memory. And it was it was kind of a fun book to write. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you drew on so many fun topics and authors. But you, so you mentioned the Freud chapter, and I'd like to get there. But the topic of mental illness, it isn't a focus of your book until chapter 14. But it's actually that's where I'd, I'd like to start. And I think this yeah. is something or it's probably a thorny question to begin with, because at least as we use the term colloquially, uh, mental illness really comes in degrees, but I think it would be really useful to take some time pinning down just what psychologists and perhaps like as opposed, say, to psychiatrists have in mind when they use the term, partly because by contrast, it might tell us something about what a properly functioning mind is, which might set a good course for the rest of the, the conversation. No, I think that's a great question. Um and in, in some ways, it's an interesting chapter for you to begin on because it's a chapter I was least prepared to write. Huh. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm right. a research psychologist. I, I got my start studying language. I studied cognitive development, studied morality. Just about every other chapter in a book I had, I had some background knowledge. Clinical psychology was just for me, just being an interested person and teaching intro psych and so on. More than any other chapter, I had help with it. I, I had um, psychiatrists and clinical psychologists look it over and I talked with them about it and so on. And I begin with your question, which is what is mental illness or, or psychopathology or something like that? Because as you know, there are some people that are radical view there's no such thing. This is just a way which we stigmatize people who are different. We deny human differences and we take away responsibility. Um, I don't believe that, but I think that there's something to the critique. And I think that to some extent, what counts as a mental illness depends on your culture mm. and your situation. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to, I'm, I'm largely persuaded by the idea that the best way to think about things like schizophrenia or depression or panic disorders um, is in terms of points on a continuum. So it's not like schizophrenia isn't like COVID or cancer, yeah. where you either have it or you don't. And then once you have it, you could be having an extreme version or a mild version. But it's the sort of thing that, that there's a presence or an absence. Rather, it's a certain point on a continuum of being. Um, maybe a better example is anxiety disorders, where we all experience some anxiety. And you should experience some anxiety. If you don't experience any anxiety, your you, your life would be pretty awful. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to to respond reasonably to things that should scare you and should make you prepare. But if you have too much of it, you're in, in trouble. So where's the too much point? And that's somewhat of a political and, and moral question. And I believe that at the same time as I believe that there are clear cases where you where plainly there is a disorder defined in terms of the person is miserable. That's one thing. They're, they're, and they aren't functioning well. And something's kind of broken. But you could believe that and at the same time say where you draw the line is a matter of sort of convenience, insurance companies, morality, politics. You know, it's just like saying the point in which you say somebody is tall is kind of arbitrary. Yeah, but I, exactly. I, I don't mean but I don't mean to deny that somebody who's eight feet tall is in fact tall. Mm -hmm. But there is some 
arbitrariness there at the cutoff point That's right. that you have to make uh, a, maybe a normative choice based on what's That's right. politically expedient or medically expedient, this sort of thing. So, so take depression, the, the, the standard DSM, the sort of Bible of patho- clinical uh, psychology, says you're depressed if you have so-and-so symptoms for at least two weeks. And it makes sense. You know, okay, that's a rough period. You got to sort of draw some sort of line. But nobody believes that, oh, that's 14 days. If, if, you know, it could have just as well been 15 days or 13 days. Just two weeks is rough. And from the standpoint of insurance companies and, and the law, you might actually want to say something's depressed or not depressed. But people are aware that these lines are somewhat arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And regarding depression, do you think it's useful to refer to depression just as this blanket mental illness when it's such a textureless term to begin with for what can be so many different underlying pathologies or even perhaps no underlying pathology at all to speak of, like, but something more commonplace like extended grief maybe? Yeah, that's a good, it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, right now, psychologists are kind of do the best they can. And, but clinical psychology more than other fields is kind of at a primitive stage. And so there's actually been controversy over just the point you're making. You're, you're, the love of your life dies and you're miserable. But psychologists wouldn't classify that as depression because you have a good reason for it. It used to be called the grief exemption. Um, and, and But some people say, well, what if your life is going badly and you're depressed? Why doesn't that count as an exemption? It might turn out, just to build up that, when we get our science right, depression is going to turn out to be not one thing, but three different things. Mm-hmm. Just like we used to think diabetes was one thing, now we break it up into more than one thing. It might be that this sharp division we sometimes talk about between depression and anxiety disorders um, will turn to be blurred. And in fact, you know, a lot of people in the business think this is kind of an artificial distinction or two ways of manifesting the same basic underlying problem. You know, drugs that work for one will often work for the other. And so I think, I think where we are, we have a category called depression and you might go to a doctor, you get diagnosed with major depression to be distinguished from bipolar depression. So we make some distinctions, but as our science progresses, we're going to get better and better. I hope. And, and sort of maybe, and, and our original categories may transform. You mentioned at the outset of your response that there are some people who think there is no such thing as mental illness. And this is, I guess, more of a, a normative question that won't really have its answer and experiment. But just how do you think we ought to distinguish between like mere uh, personality disorders or other maladaptations or the neurodiversities that you mentioned from something more severe that ought to be characterized as a mental illness bona fide. Since you said that you think there's some truth to this. Yeah, I do think there's some truth. Um, So one answer, which I think, isn't quite right, but as close is it could get to be an illness if it causes a person significant distress and misery. 
But the reason why I don't think that that's entirely true is what if it, what if the distress and misery is caused by an intolerant society? So suppose you're in a world where if you're gay, you suffer from extreme discrimination. So you're miserable. But you wouldn't want to say, therefore, being gay is a mental illness. You'd want to say, look, it's not a mental illness. Rather, people you know, are being terrible. Mm-hmm. And so just being miserable isn't enough. Maybe you have, maybe somebody shows some degree of being on the autistic spectrum and people treat the person terribly because of that. The, and, but in another society, they treat them well. And in the first society, they're miserable. In the second society, they're not. Again, you don't want to say it's an illness here and not an illness there. I think the real answer is going to come down to, and here where I'm really going to endorse the sort of medical model, that mental illnesses could be seen on analogy with physical illnesses um, as some sort of system not working properly, not working in a, in a, a normative fashion. So if you have a social phobia so bad you can't leave your house and you can't talk to people, you're miserable, but you're not just miserable because of society's being cruel. You're miserable because something's wrong with you, because your normal social system isn't working too well. If you're hallucinating or having paranoid delusions, the normal belief fixation mechanisms in your brain just are not working well. Um, if you are, um, if 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 you are suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar depression, so on. I think that the proper way to see this, and here I'm really going straight up medical, is that there's something in you which is broken, just like if you have pancreatic cancer or COVID. Does that make sense? It does make sense to me. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm thinking about the first situation that you brought up with uh, the gay person in the world that doesn't understand. Is this the sort of case where you rely as the psychologist on the skilled psychiatrist to determine on a case by ba- case by case basis whether or not what is being dealt with is in fact a mental illness. Um, no, I mean psychiatrists are just doctors who have clinical training. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they have any sort of special gifts, and I don't think my colleagues who are clinical psychologists have any particular gifts too. I mean. In some way, they may be the worst judges of them all because they're raised in some sort of tradition. Um, you, know, you don't, maybe you don't want a barber to tell you when you need to have your hair cut. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just in that, and these people are, are sort of maybe overly eager to find mental illnesses. I think it's just it's the question of what counts as an illness and what doesn't is in the end a sort of, um, in part, again, moral and political, but also sort of scientific based on theories of, of mental functioning. And there's real hard cases. To justify this kind of answer, you've got to realize there are cases which aren't hard at all. If, if someone who's a paranoid schizophrenic and is, you know, wailing away because they think there's voices in their heads and, and you know, the CIA is tracking them through you know, invisible beams. And I must get like three or four emails a week from people with schizophrenia. And sadly, the emails so much look alike. They're always involved in they're being tortured. They're being, their, their minds are being influenced and so on. And those are clear cases. No reasonable person could look at that and say, oh, you're fine. It's just society. Plainly, these people are broken. 
and 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 then so you got the clear cases the 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 other cases are just more difficult to deal with do i'm i'm curious now do people with schizophrenia email you so often because they conflate you with a psychiatrist who might be treating them is that's what um, I think there's two reasons. One reason is that I'm an emeritus professor at Yale. Mm -hmm. And so I'm on the Yale directory in the Yale psychology department. And sadly, a, f some, a fair amount of delusions revolve around Yale. I'm being kidnapped by Yale. Make them stop. Oh, wow. The scientists are experimenting on me. It's, again, you know, and so that's one of it. Another one is that I, I, I have, um, I've written popular books on psychology and teach this on, online course. So people think I'm a psychologist. And of that sense. Mm -hmm. And so they contact me. So I also get a lot of people talking to me, asking me questions because they say they, they talk about, you know, they're depressed or something like that. And my answer to them is is always the same, which is I'm not I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained as a therapist, but you should see a therapist. Hmm. I'm 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 skeptical about the progress that clinical psychologists have made, but at the same time, I think the evidence is pretty abundant that therapy is better than no therapy. Huh. I'm I'm just curious before we move on what it is that you're skeptical about regarding the progress that clinical psychologists have made. Well, so in some way, again, I'm not a specialist, so I'm taking this from other people. But but I quote in my chapter uh, Thomas Insel, who was director of uh, of the National Institutes of Mental Health, and he worked. He was director for like 13 years, and and in an interview after he left, which is pretty recently. He said, you know, we've been working for over a decade and we spent, I think, $20 billion and we actually have not made that much progress in that, you know, there's things which are promising, there's treatments that are promising, but it's not like it, if you're very depressed and you see a psychologist or psychiatrist now versus you're very depressed and you see somebody 10 years ago, it's not going to be that much different. Right. We'll try you out on, on this drug and that drug. They'll talk to you. There'll be different things. There'll be cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, these these are better than nothing. But it's not, you would have thought, and people had this, these great, you know, with genomics and neuroscience, they would have thought you come in, you're depressed, and boom, you know, we give you, we give you the right medication to treat you. Mm -hmm. We give you the right exercise to make you feel better. And um, we haven't been there yet. Yeah. Though, as we discussed uh, briefly a bit ago, one problem with depression in particular is that there could be so many different underlying pathologies that result in the the observed uh, depression, and that makes the treatment quite difficult. Fair enough. But, but you could also say the same thing about schizophrenia or, uh, or bipolar depression, which is a lot more homogeneous, mm -hmm. which is, it's not clear we're so much better at treating it now than we were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, speaking of the mental illnesses and treatments, this seems like a good segue to get into Freud and Freud. psychoanalysis. So ha I have a, a number of upcoming conversations with psychoanalysts who uh, we might say to some degree or another have drunk uh, Freud's Kool-Aid or Lacan's or uh, whoever's, which actually made it very important to me that I cover this topic with someone who I expect to have a much less ideologically motivated view yeah. of Freud and psychoanalysis. So to start with, I think in your book, you say quite explicitly that you can get through an entire 
undergraduate major in psychology without ever hearing Freud's name. So just to start with, what is his relationship then to contemporary psychology as it's done at a department like Yale or Toronto? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just to sort of place myself, I'm among psychologists rather Freud friendly. Mm-hmm. I, I give a lecture in my class. I have a chapter. I say them nice things about him. The mainstream view, and I'm very critical of him, the mainstream view in psychology is, is, is more critical. It is, um, Eocene is an embarrassment. Eocene is an embarrassment. And, and that the idea is that just about everything he said, every specific claim he made about, uh, the oral stage, the anal stage, the primal scene, the Oedipus complex, penis envy, hysteria, repression, uh, you know, defense mechanism, everything is both is nonsense. It's just nonsense. Should be be jettisoned. Um, and that uh, there's nothing to be said uh, good about him. He was a you know on a personal level, he was a fraud, a charlatan, a liar. But as a scientist, uh, he was just deeply mistaken about what matters the most. So that's the sort of party line among my colleagues. Like you know, if if you um if you if you listen to like a lecture on on um on anything having to do with clinical psychology, and you sort of sat in back and said, well, you know, what would Freud say about this? You know, people would roll their eyes. And you know, before we get into Lacan or whatever, who I don't think anybody would have heard of, and there's enormous discussion of Freud in the university, but in you know in English departments in in um, in in departments in the humanities. So that's the negative rap on Freud, which I think is fundamentally right. On the other hand, I think Freud got some things, got some really important things uh, right. Um, one is, I think the main one is the importance of the unconscious. The idea that there's unconscious processes govern how we think and uh, the, the, our emotion, our emotional responses to things, many of our choices. Um, an example I'd like to give is, suppose you're a political psychologist. And you want to know, political psychologists want to know this, um, they want to know why some people voted for Trump and others voted for Biden. And so you might think, well, just ask people. And when people could lie to you, but just ask people. Ask them quietly, so tell them, don't lie, tell me the truth. And nobody would do that. Why? Because, because psychologists understand that often you might not know why you voted for Biden or you voted for Trump. You might think it's for one reason, but it's for another reason. In other words, political psychologists appreciate that you could be governed by, by factors, your behavior could be governed by factors beyond your control. And I think there's a great debt to Freud we have here, um, where maybe all the specifics are wrong, but I think in this core idea, he gets credit. Hmm. Well, you said that he's seen as an embarrassment because everything he said is nonsense. I think your word was should be jettisoned or has been jettisoned. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I know that Karl Popper thought so much of psychoanalysis is unfalsifiable and that it's not even science. And so I'm trying to uh, make these two, reconcile these two views where one, we can, we can jettison all of this, but then on the other hand, we can't even test it. So what is there to be uh, just jettisoned? Yeah, it, it it has the flavor of such awful food and such small portions too, <laughs> where you know you can't you can't you, you know I don't want to argue. Um, well, it's all unfalsifiable, you know. Popper's critique and later uh, Adolf Grunbaum 
expanded this critique. It's, it's all, in other words, uh, Freud could explain everything. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, no matter what happens, Freud has an explanation for it. And kind of when you explain everything, you explain nothing. When, when, when your theory can account for anything, cannot be proven false, it's not science anymore. It's akin to astrology. That's one critique. A second critique is that it's wrong. It's just, it's just been proven wrong. Well, they both can't be right. So, so let me let me say the I think the proper formulation, which is, in the hands of Freud and the Freudians, the theory often was unfalsifiable. In that, um, in that, no matter what happened, they could give an explanation for it, and it loses scientific interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You could say, okay, well, we're not gonna we're not gonna be like Freud and the Freudians. We're gonna take these theories seriously. So Freud said one of his claims, just toss out a kind of claim at random, saying that um, that um, uh, uh, some if if you have problems with toilet training, you'll be fixated at the anal stage, and then as an adult, you'd be more prone to have an anal personality where you're say very very picky and very precise and very neat. That's one of the claims. He said that you know. A boy who loses his father early in life will become homosexual because blah, 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 and a story about it. Now, Freud could wiggle out of all that, but let's say, let's not wiggle out. Let's actually test these claims. And it turns out whenever you try to test them, look for relating to toilet training and personality, death of a parent and sexuality, it just doesn't turn out to be true. Is that a way of sort of threading the needle, getting getting to no, sort of complain no, about both of things? That- that's quite helpful. I think that I, I heard this on your quite brilliant podcast with david pizarro i've listened to every episode so far uh it really is oh. it really is great but oh thank you thank you dave david gets so much of the credit he's this a uh, really sharp guy and also he's he's a, just this natural well sound like a, sound like a, like a backhanded insult but a natural podcaster and he's very sort of charming and easy to talk to yeah but, he's he's quite good uh, uh parenthetically i'll be i'll be reaching out to him soon but i think it was i think it was on this podcast that you said you two were recounting a story in which, well, a few minutes ago you said that his theories were unfalsifiable in the hands of Freud and his disciples. And this story that you related in the podcast, I believe, was that Freud was having some exchange with one of these disciples, and the disciple disagreed with Freud's theory. And Freud's response was that he's just, it's just like, he's attacking his father. He wants to kill his father or something like, so he just sort of shifts the goalposts and changes the, changes the subject. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a move which you is almost dazzling in its rhetorical creativity, which is even contemporary Freudians and people of his school would often respond to criticisms by saying the critic is mentally ill, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, uh, uh, and, and basically I think one of the stories that, that Freud, that, that David and I talked about, um, was, uh, Freud had a dream, uh, did a, this wonderful dream interpretation. And this woman dreamt about her, um, that, that she was wearing this hat of a certain shape. And, uh, and, and so, so Freud immediately analogized the hat to a penis, even though it didn't seem very penis shaped. And, and, and he goes on and tells this quite interesting and fascinating interpretation. But there's nothing in the world that could prove him wrong. In fact, if the woman protested and said, that's a terrible interpretation, that's total nonsense, any good Freudian would say, I, I've really touched the nerve here. I must be at the, coming at the truth. Hmm. So, um, 
Dreams are actually something that I wanted to touch on briefly. After I say this, you'll know that I've been making my round listening to all sorts of podcasts. But I was listening to Matthew Walker's of, of Berkeley's podcast on sleep, and he did a series on dreams. And I think, and this was a couple of months ago, so now I, I don't want to be dangerously misquoting him. But I think he said that Freud got a lot wrong, and he set psychology of of dreams back a long way because things because his claims couldn't be uh, falsified the way that he would interpret dreams. And I'm wondering what the relationship between Freud's theories on dreams is to contemporary psychology's theories on dreams. Because just because you mentioned that contemporary psychology retains his views to some degree yeah. on the unconscious. And I think of the unconscious as playing a very big role in our dreams, at least trivially because we're unconscious when we have them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Freud's work in dream interpretation picked up from a long tradition that ran, you know, long before Freud, people were interpreting dreams in different ways and he, he turned it into a very rich enterprise. And, you know, again, to give, to give points to Freud, he's at times a brilliant, beautiful writer. Um, if, if you sort of don't care about whether or not he gets it right, reading chunks of the interpretation of dreams could be like a, like a joy. Um, but I don't think a lot of Freud's specific claims about dreams, which often turn around wish fulfillment. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but he, he thinks for the most part, dreams are wish fulfillment. And I don't think anybody believes that anymore. Um, I don't, I, I haven't kept up with the state of the art on what people think about dreams. I know many psychologists would tell you dreams don't have the meanings that we, uh, that, that we attribute to them. They, they aren't just some sort of royal road to the unconscious. Plainly, the dreams you have connect to what's happened to you during the day, so-called a day residue, I think is a, Freud, a Freudian term, and connects to what you're interested in, your desires, and so on. But I think a lot of psychology be skeptical about saying we can learn that much about you by listening to your dreams. One, I mentioned that I was going to be speaking to some psychoanalysts in the near future. One of them is Mark Solms of of Cape Town, mm -hmm. who does a lot of work on dreaming. And as I understand it, at this nascent point in my uh, preparation as, and research, he's very concerned with tying important tenets of psychoanalytic theory to their neurological correlates mm -hmm. so i think that'll be a really interesting conversation when it comes around yeah i, th I think i you know freud had a lot of brilliant things to say and it, it wouldn't surprise me at all some strands of his ideas turned out to motivate active research programs and turned out to be right or turned out to capture some insight i give some examples in my book of a few things i think he did get get right mm -hmm. um i don't know his work at all i think that that I would be underwhelmed if it turned out, if somebody came to you and sort of said, well, let me tell you stories. I this, this client came to me and she had this dream and I interpreted it and I was right. Well, you know, humans are really good storytellers. But if, if, you know, if somebody says we did this controlled study with a hundred people and we found that this kind of dream correlated with this and so on, that becomes more interesting. Mm -hmm. And returning again to something you said at the outset of your response that, Freud isn't really given 
credit for his discovery of the unconscious and that, I mean, we don't hear his name invoked in the Toronto psychology department. Is this the product of some historical or sociological development in psychology over the past hundred years, or is it just an accident of some sort? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think I think psychologists as a whole aren't very history minded. Mm-hmm. So we um that makes sense. We we you know, we just so I know a lot of social social psychologists who believe the unconscious is extremely powerful in terms of to social impression. They never talk about Freud, they talk about the work of their advisor or other social psychologists. We just don't look that back that far. Mm-hmm. And then we didn't talk so much about the treatment modalities or options for various mental illnesses. And I'm curious how you think of psychoanalysis as practiced by contemporary analysis and how you think it stacks up as modality for treating various mental illnesses like the ones we mentioned earlier, like depression on the one hand or schizophrenia or these personality disorders or bipolar. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to rag on anybody who practices psychoanalysis or participates in psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. as a way of self-discovery. You know, I think that, that there are benefits to talking to a supportive, smart person going over your past, even if the sort of meta theory that Freud offers isn't, is, is in the end, not that powerful. It's going to be hugely beneficial. And the thing is, Almost all psychoanalysts don't just do psychoanalysis. Often they're sort of very smart, sensitive, perceptive patient people who will work with somebody to sort of explore what's going on in their heads. And if you have the time, if you could afford it, it could actually be pretty beneficial. But if you have bipolar depression, there are certain medications you should take that will do a lot for you. Um, If you are... um, if you are have suffered from a phobia or you're obsessive or an obsessive compulsive, you can't stop washing your hands, cognitive behavioral therapy is the treatment of choice. Mm-hmm. And and for a whole lot of things, we there are actually better therapies than psycho putting aside whatever psychoanalysis, there are better therapies. Typically some combination of medication with talking. With talking, but the talking may just be, you know, let's let's go over some procedures to make your phobia go away. And here's what we do. And, you know, it's funny because you, you see, um, I, I, I just finished teaching intro, intro psych. So I show a clip of, um, of um, Freudian psychoanalysis. As you a clip from Sopranos. And Tony, Tony Sopranos talking about his dream. And Dr. Malfi's doing his nerve. It's so moving. And then I show a, a clip of modern cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's in this sterile white room with fluorescent light. And they're sitting at a table together. And the psychologist is saying, so here's what we're going to do. Here's our, and here's why we think it works. And it's so unsexy. It's so honest. And here's a procedure we're going to use. And this is why we think any questions and so on. And um, nonetheless, cognitive behavioral therapy is unsexy. It is a friend of mine who is a clinical psychologist says it just bores the crap out of her. It's so boring to do. Mm. The only thing is it does make people better. Yeah. And, so, and when you advocate CBT for something like phobias, I'm guessing that 
this recommendation comes from a review of the literature, which then That's right. comes out very favorably. And I'm wondering what sort of studies there are on psychoanalysis in this same vein that you're drawing on when you do not make this recommendation and you think that there are better treatments. Yeah, it, it's there's often sort of comparison treatments where they pit different treatments against one another. And it is harder to assess psychoanalysis, particularly traditional psychoanalysis, because like they might say that for, for the truly traditional stuff, you're going to come four times a week, lie in a sofa, and it's going to be a few years. And in some way, when somebody says that, they've immediately disqualified themselves. You don't want to spend three years because you're afraid you can't go to work because you're afraid that there's spiders in the parking lot. Right. Um, there, there are, it is, it is, and psychoanalysts and psychodynamic theorists in general will stress this, it's kind of hard to fairly test their treatment in part, and to be fair, and this is something maybe, maybe could have a, a compromised position. They don't, they, they will tell you, we're not really in the business of curing phobias are curing bipolar depression. We're in the business of, you know, turning mental illness into everyday misery. We're in the difference in, in the business of of helping people learn about themselves and learn how to get tied up in knots and learn how to think better and have a better picture of themselves. So they don't have the sort of sharp treatment goals that insurance companies love and scientists like to test for. You know? I could tell when your phobia goes away, you say, I'm not afraid of spiders anymore. I can't really tell whether you have insight into your, your mental processes. Are you living sort of the best life you can? Hmm. Well, this point about the duration of treatment is very well taken, but I can still imagine that, I mean, just playing, I guess, devil's yeah. advocate for the psychoanalyst, that there might be some sort of promise that psychoanalysis might have some sort of promise for quote unquote rewiring the brain and then and that money aside there might be some utility in uh conjunctive treatment of a medication on the one hand yeah. and then psychoanalysis on the other so that over time perhaps you don't need to take that medication anymore but then of course you still run into those same problems with um trusting with um testing, I mean, and especially there are huge yeah. <laughs> uh, monetary hurdles to running a, a sizable test, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, also just to be fair, a lot of people who do psychoanalysis tend to be psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. um, and psychiatrists are actually um, able to prescribe medication. And so sometimes psychoanalysis isn't necessarily incompatible with medication. You may go to go to a, a, a shrink who who gives you, you know, Prozac or some modern variant of it, and also, you know, spends a lot of time talking to you about your mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe one response is um, the way you're framing it. So totally, I'll respond. You can respond, respond back. But, but there is a sort of a burden of proof thing, which is you ask me reasonably enough. Where are the studies that showed a psychoanalysis doesn't, after the long procedure and everything, doesn't yield positive? Results and those, I think those are those are difficult to to find because of the amorphousness of what a success counts for. But shouldn't it be more? Um, we should look towards them and say, "Where's your evidence that you work?" Because if not, 
you're wasting a lot of people's time and money. And worse than that, you're you're taking them away from therapies that do seem to have notable proof. Sure, sure. And I have done zero research on this whatsoever. But so you can tell me if I'm wrong, if the preponderance of analyzans who come out from a full-term analysis report that they feel much better. Because at least in the public culture uh, where I have heard these sorts of anecdotal responses, they've all been pretty positive uh, that people have had good experiences if they've completed the analysis. But this might uh, be statistically problematic because you're discounting all the people who don't complete the analysis because it didn't work. Yeah, all of those. Well, first thing, anybody who says analyzans is not unfamiliar to literature. <laughs> um, but but you're you're right, which is that that you know have all sorts of anecdotes about you know everybody who lost weight on a on a sort of a, a high fat Atkins like diet will tell you about it. Everyone whose meditation has led them to inner right. peace will stop you and say, dude, let me tell you about my meditation practice. The people who, who it doesn't work out for are less vocal about it. And even for the people for whom it works, it's sort of psych 101, but there's issues of like placebo effects and so on. Right. So even if after four years, suppose you test everybody after four years of extensive psychotherapy and they all say, I'm better off because of it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe most people after, give them a four-year gap, they're feeling better. Or maybe, you know, the very idea that they've spent all this money and did all this treatment, if, if they played, you know, they said, we're going to have you play video games in the office. Four years later, I'll say, oh, I'm much better now. Mm-hmm. I hope you don't feel like I'm trying to be on the, the psychoanalyst bully pulpit fighting you back. I, I... No, I, li- I, I like this because, because I'm the pro-Freud guy. Mm-hmm. In, in my, in my, I included a chapter in my book. I say nice things about him. So, so mm-hmm. getting this is this is this clip will I hope go viral and, and help my cred with by my colleagues. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, well, one last question here. So, the unconscious, even if it's not attributed to Freud, has been retained as a vital part of contemporary yeah. psychology. A lot of talk therapy is referred to as psychotherapy or psychodynamic therapy. And I'm wondering, is this etymological connection just purely accidental or is Freudian theory still deeply ingrained in our more mainstream contemporary therapeutic modalities than people in a psychology department would like to admit? So... It, it's a, it's a good question, and I think I, I think a, a clinical psychologist would be able to give you a better answer. Mm-hmm. But but my sense of it is there's Freudian therapy, which is a fairly narrow sort of things based on certain Freudian ideas, and there's a broader category of talk therapy. So if you're depressed or you're anxious, or you're having problems with your relationships, you see somebody, most likely they're going to talk to you. You know. Nobody, nobody would ever give you medication and say, get out of here, you got your medication. No, one of them talk to you. And, and it's a separate question. So there's all these sort of treatments for depression, the, the cognitive side of CBT, the cognitive side of cognitive behavioral therapy, which involve 
you know, listening sensitively to you and, um, and, and, uh, uh, asking you questions, getting you to think about your life in, in a more reasonable way, maybe trying to combat some of your, some of the sort of, um, negative thinking that people with depression are prone to, you know, so a standard dialogue, and this isn't Freudian at all, but this talk therapy is you come in and say, and say, you know, I, uh, I, I fail this exam. My life is all, I'm, I'm a failure. And then this, the psychologist goes, well, so what's the worst thing that could happen if you fail your exam? Well, oh, I don't know. They'll kick me out of school. And what's the worst thing that could happen for that? And through directed questioning, you kind of get the person to try to think more realistically about things. Um, you know, there's a view, there, there's, there's sort of, again, we're getting, again, with the sort of falsifiability contradictions. For certain problems like phobias and so on, there are, are treatments that work. But there's also what psychologists call a dodo bird effect, which is often therapy in general works regardless of what school is motivated from. Part of this is because therapies, therapists in the real world tend to be eclectic. It's very unusual to get someone who's a pure Freudian, a pure humanist, a pure CBT. They tend to be eclectic. But also because all therapy, all talk therapy, share certain ingredients and ingredients like um, like the idea of, of sympathy, of here's somebody listening to you, so here's somebody who cares about you, mm-hmm. so who, who has hope. All of a sudden, you see a therapist and all of a sudden there's hope. You're doing something. The therapist thinks you're going to get better. And maybe these general things play a role, very separate from any specific Freudian or any other claims. Right. And what you're pointing to, I think, is how tangled the theoretical, the the therapeutic uh, interaction is with all sorts of things, um, with the the relationships you develop, just having somebody to talk to, perhaps the yeah. medication you're taking. I mean, there are so many variables that it's going to be very hard to isolate one of them, control for one in studies. It is, but 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 you can do. You know, it's, it's, these are expensive and difficult studies. And putting aside psychoanalysis, to taking many years. There's actually short-term psychoanalysis, which which can be tested. Really, but but putting aside putting aside that, you can actually you know have three groups. One group is a waitlist thing where you apply for treatment, you don't get any treatment. The second group just gets talk therapy. The third group gets talk therapy therapy plus a certain medication. Maybe the fourth group gets talk therapy and a different medication. And then you compare and contrast. You see who's better at that. And, you know, this work is difficult to do. It's expensive. Um, the effects are going to be muted by the, by the fact that some therapists are better than others, regardless of what they're doing. The effects are going to be muted by your point before, which is two people who come in and both get diagnosed as, depre- as have suffering from major depression, but they have different things wrong with them at some interesting level. But nonetheless, just for the same logic, you could compare different medications for you know for COVID or something. You could you can do this for 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 depression or schizophrenia. So okay, we've covered. Freud, we've covered mental illness. The next thing that I had in mind... 13, 13 chapters to go. <laughs> 13 chapters to go, but I won't make you go through all 13, especially because uh, we need everybody to buy this book. I saw, actually, this review you just posted. Actually, I'm going <laughs> <I'm gonna, laughs> to pull that up. I thought it was pretty funny. Um, a review you just posted on Twitter. 
Let's see what it was. Another rave Some review for Psych. Book arrived within the expected time frame and as described by the seller, no writing or highlights. Very happy with the purchase. And you got five stars on Amazon. So anybody listening, you know it's the good stuff. I'm very proud of it because most of the book that Amazon send out do not do not have highlighting. Yeah. And um and I think that's that's a real strength yeah. of a it reflects on my editor and my publisher and kind of on me. Mm-hmm. So you're so feeling good a, about that. A premium product. It's a it's a fresh, fresh book. Mm-hmm. And and it often is delivered on time. Yeah, and it hasn't been scribbled in or anything. <laughs> it hasn't been scribbled in. Yeah. Yes. So what I wanted to turn next to was the topic the chapter on rationality. And you begin your chapter on the rational animal pretty much exactly where I expected with Aristotle's characterization of us. And I always thought that featherless biped was a lot more apt because humans don't strike me as particularly rational. And I think that this is something Freud, going back to Freud for a moment, he he quite nicely exposed in the sense that we have hidden uh, underlying processes, contradictory beliefs, um, unanalyzed impulses that, I mean, they ultimately manifest themselves in our thinking and actions but this is a a big open question before we talk about some of our deficiencies our particular deficiencies yeah in what senses do you think we ought to be thought of as rational animals in like the positive sense um well so a lot depends on what you mean by rationality but we define rationality as the um the capacity to act in ways that satisfy one's goals based on sort of logic and knowledge. And I think the qualification is important because um, I don't think you could extend rationality to questions of sort of ultimate goals. You know, if um, if it's raining outside and you don't want to get wet, then you should bring an umbrella. And if you don't want to get wet, you don't bring an umbrella. And there's an umbrella sitting there. You're not being very reasonable. You know, hey, hey, dummy, you should have picked up an umbrella. But if you like getting wet, then not bringing an umbrella is perfectly rational. Um, to take an example that's more real, and that sort of connects to some debates about rationality and irrationality, um, if, you, if your goal is to get things right, then you shouldn't be subject to partisan polls. You shouldn't care about what other people who are popular think. You should seek out the data and unbiased, use logic, use reason, and so on. On the other hand, if your goal is to be liked, if your goal is to have your neighbors think well of you and be popular, then you may do other things. You may actually sort of monitor the world to see what's a popular view and then, and then hold to it. You may, you may want to avoid the views that unpopular people have and so on. So by that notion of rationality, I think humans are not always rational. And I spent a good part of the chapter talking about the very famous research program by Kahneman and Tversky showing our sort of glitches and where we go wrong. But I think humans are extraordinarily rational. Um, you and I got in touch with email some, some time ago. We made plans to talk. And here we are. We've kind of, we put a schedule in. We set it up. We set up time. We've got our computers, which we are capable of operating. And, um, and here we are, and we're talking. And there's nothing, and artificial intelligence is a million miles away from doing a degree of planning like that. And yet, and yet we could do it. Now, what could have happened was I could have forgot, you could have forgot. I could have gotten drunk for this. I could have 
fail to turn on my computer properly. There's a million ways I could have messed up. And sometimes we do mess up. But we get things right so much of the time in an extraordinary way. And I think this is a testament powers of rationality. Correct me if I misremember your words, but I think you said that at the outset that you think of rationality loosely as the capacity to satisfy one's goals based on logic and knowledge. And I'm wondering then why the, obviously like my cat or my dog couldn't like set the computer up and get on this podcast. But I think dogs have some rudimentary understanding of logic and some rudimentary knowledge. I mean, my dog probably couldn't do this, but my cat might be able to get into a cabinet to get food. And I, I'm not going to say that my cat is a, a rational animal, but where do you divide the line? Or is this maybe like schizophrenia? It's, it's, it's somewhere, there's a vagueness in rationality. Actually, that's it's, it's an, I never thought of it that way. But I think under that definition of rationality, I'm quite willing to grant animals, you know, rational. Oh, really? Behavior. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I don't think. I so I don't. Um, you know, I, I probably do quote Aristotle. Yeah. But, but, but you're um, disputing that that it, the rational animal really picks us out as the the king of the the creatures. Yeah. Now we're capable of feats of rationality, like you know. We can think, you know, we look at the moon and say, hey, be good to be walking on there. And then, you know, a few thousand years later, there we are. We're walking on the moon. And that's just enorm I think that's an enormous feat of rationality. We have science, you know, which is collective rationality at an extraordinary degree. But I think cats have their own sort of feline rationality. You can imagine comparing two cats. You know, one cat who successfully stalks animals and, and pesters you for food and so on, and another cat that's just confused and doesn't really do anything properly. Mm -hmm. And I think the first cat be more rational than the second. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm much more uh, simpatico to your view of rationality now that we include animals. Not because yeah. of how much I love my animals, but because the moniker rational animal in me has always had this connotation that humans are always rational and yeah. that just to me i mean i don't think anybody would uh, have suggested that but i found that the yeah. name off-putting for that reason yeah um i think that's fair enough mm -hmm. i think there's there's all sorts of reasons why we are not um always rational and some of them, some of these reasons, though, in some way, in some sort of paradoxical way, um, reflect our rational natures. Yes, so, yes. You know, so we're often irrational in cases where we respond in what would have been a rational way in the environment in which we evolved. Right. I think another reason, though, a way in which they're rational is that some of these flaws, or I mean, I'm begging the question by calling them flaws. I don't mean to call them flaws. Some of these corner-cutting operations that might yeah. sidestep full rationality are rational in the sense that they might work out most of the time. Maybe that's what you mean by having in yeah. this this evolutionary origin. But what's what's key in the 
route that I'm going is that they save us on computational power. That's and right. I don't mean to be presupposing some computational model of the mind there. I mean, it, no, you, you, you could do that. Okay. I'm good. I'm cool with that. Okay. Um, it's a line I think Gerd Gigerenter has has made, um, which is um, a lot of things are seemingly irrational, but they fail to take into account that we we have limited resources mm-hmm. and um, and limited computational power, and sometimes there's sort of quick and dirty hacks that 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 are useful, and sometimes lead us in, into error. Right. So you know, one of Kahneman Tversky's famous examples is the availability bias, which is I ask you how frequent something is. And the answer by how quickly examples of it come to come to mind. And, you know, you could easily that could easily lead you into mistakes. So people overestimate, you know, terrorist attacks and plane crashes and underestimate more mundane things like heart attacks and strokes, because when when there's a terrorist attack, it's extremely salient. So it's easy to think about it. Um, and so those are mistakes and maybe rational in sort of the, the immediate sense, but sorry, irrational in the immediate sense. But but it's not a bad it's not a bad way to to do things. It's not a bad rough and ready trip. We don't have Excel sheets in front of us all the time. We don't have the data in front of us all the time. So this isn't a bad way of judging how frequent something is. Mm-hmm. There's a. I mean, this is not a good analogy. There's a lot missing, but we can easily imagine an evolutionary history in which the eye was able to see. Uh, maybe not electrons, but something something significantly larger. We could see our tables and laptops with much, much more detail, but the dramatic rise in brain power that would require uh, is would make it completely not worth it. But we, we see just the amount of detail necessary, even if there are some key features that are missing. That's right. Um you know, it comes down to literature unsatisficing, where unsatisficing you know, is that the right term of sort of making making do of what you have under sort of limited. I, just, I like that word; it has a nice, a real nice sound to it. I've just never heard it before. That's all. Well, okay, I'll I'll lay upon you just because I'll show you I'm a real psychologist. Thank you. Thank Some you. pop psychology, which may be a nonsense. That I'll, I'll add two it, types uh, of people. Al- analyzans in my analyzans, uh, right? You get them both in one sentence. There's yeah. not a party in the world where they wouldn't welcome you. Mm-hmm. Um, so so often you could distinguish between maximizers and satisficers. Um, uh, I confess that I am a satisficer. That I'll just look at a menu and say, ah, oh, that. Mm. And um, and I'm married to um, a maximizer who will look at everything and judge, you know, the, the options and so on. And so and and there, I, I mentioned this in my book. There's sort of a a constant tension, but the but but the truth is, we're all satisficers to some extent. You know, you I'm sure if you spent four hours staring at a menu, you'll make a better choice than if mm-hmm. you just spent five minutes. But nobody would ever want to eat with you, and you'd be miserable. Um, and that's sort of an analogy, that's, that's just a, an analogy for, for, for life in general, which is we have to make quick decisions based on, on limited information. And even in cases where we would do better by thinking about it more and absorbing more information, we have to be mindful of the fact that there's a cost in doing that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of this, I mean, I hadn't been thinking about it beforehand, but have you looked at any of the literature at all on decision fatigue? I've heard only to hear the, the the phrase, which is there's such a thing as decision fatigue, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, there's some controversy over over that, over the extent to which 
um, we get tired about making decisions. But having said that, I think it's a real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I guess the reason that it comes or the way in which I think about it is that I often go to the gym earlier in the day because if I have to if I have to make the decision later in the day uh it's it's much harder to go but this might not be a true case of decision fatigue it might just No be... it's a good example. Okay. Good. Barack Obama was uh being interviewed in men's health and you know I asked them why do you always wear the same kind of suit and he said because I have to make so many decisions each day so I try to um cut down the amount of unnecessary decisions so I don't want to have to decide what to wear. I just wear this suit. Mm-hmm. And um, and it is kind of a life hack thing where you, people are advised, cut down the number of decisions you make because each decision you make takes a little bit out of you. And again, I think that's common sense wisdom and it seems so intuitive, it's hard to believe it's false. But I know there's some controversy over, over the extent to which we actually get tired when we make decisions. Hmm. Well, another... Maybe, a, I don't know if this is, if you want to classify this as a cognitive flaw, but it didn't actually come up in the book. Uh, I have in mind the sunk cost fallacy. Oh, yeah. And I know this is this is big in the economics literature. Yeah. I don't know how big it is in the psychology literature. No. So those things dovetail yeah. um, quite a bit. But have you, are you familiar with much of the literature on that topic? Just to note or such a thing as the sunk cost fallacy. Okay. Um, I I think the classic example is, oh, no, I, something about going going to buy a movie ticket. Yeah. And uh, you have money in your pocket and you, you find you lost the money and, um, and you don't want to buy another ticket. But if the ticket had cost double the amount, you would have happily bought it. Is that a good example? Yeah, that, that's a good example. I mean, so I, when, when I discovered the sunk cost fallacy, it was, it like had a big impact on my life in a number of ways. I mean, one thing is I used to be the sort of person that when I start a book, I always finish it because I have it, I've purchased it. I feel like I am obligated yeah. to do so. But now, I mean, if I start a book and um, I get 20 pages, I mean, that's just an arbitrary number, but I don't continue just because I pay yeah. for it. Yeah, that's smart. It's smart. It, 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 the sunk cost fallacy is thinking it's a good argument to say, I got to finish it because I spent all this money on it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not a very reasonable way to proceed. Mm-hmm. Well, another of the fallacies, well, I don't know if, if you want to call them fallacies, but that's in the book is base rate neglect. Yeah. What is what is this one? It's when, um, again, this is mostly from Kahneman and uh, mm-hmm. and Tversky. and it's it's again it's the fact that when we when we have to sort of do probabilistic judgments like is this person a, a farmer or a, or or a musician um, is uh, uh, well actually to stick with that is it's, it's a nice it's a nice illustration a nice illustration of the base rate fallacy is um, is you tell somebody there's somebody and he's he's very cultured and he loves um, he loves going to museums, but he particularly loves music, and he has a very expensive uh, music equipment at home, and he reads biographies of famous musicians. What do you think he's most likely to be, uh, a musician in a symphony orchestra or a farmer? 
And people will say, oh, I'm a musician in the symphony orchestra. They tend to say things like that. But the thing is, there is, these are made up numbers, but there's like a hundred musicians in symphony orchestras full time in America and like a million farmers. So these base rates, the probability, not knowing anything of, of, what, of what this sample you're picking out is likely to be, means he's almost certainly a farmer. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we tend not to focus that much on base rates. I mean, another example is, you know, your neighbor, imagine your neighbor is, is reclusive, but he has a large collection of guns and da, 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 da. And he showed all the signs of being a serial killer. Well, he probably isn't a serial killer because there are not many serial killers. It's a very right. small proportion. Uh, the, the, um, the, the base rate, the, the illustration of avoiding base rate fallacy comes from uh, doctors, which is when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. Right. And if, you, if you're just as likely to say it's a zebra as a horse, you're ignoring base rates. There's a lot more horses. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming there is actually from this analogy. I don't know anything about, about horses and zebras, but I just assume. <laughs> yeah. The, the way that this actually, now that you spell it out, the way that this comes up in my life all the time, and I'm sure pretty much everybody's um, lives to the extent that we're social is we're constantly thinking that other people are thinking about us. Uh, yes. When in fact uh, they're probably not when you think about all the other things that they in fact have going on in their minds, it might be difficult to translate this to the base rate fallacy, but I think there's something. Very no, I, I like that. It's clever. I mean, you, that stumbles onto another uh, thing this time from social psychology, which is the spotlight effect. And the spotlight effect's very cool. The spotlight effect is um, is the tendency we have to um, to think that everybody notices us and that we're in the focus of, of everybody's attention. So there's some really nice studies by Tom Gilovich. What they did was they got people to wear T-shirts. And sometimes the T-shirts were somebody cool like Jerry Seinfeld. Experiment was done a while ago. Yeah. Or somebody uncool like Barry Manilow. And then you walk through a room of people, and then they ask you, how many people noticed your T-shirt? And people say, they all noticed it. They were all talking about it. But then you ask the people, and they never noticed. Study after study finds we overestimate how, many, how, how people are focused, the extent to which people are focused on us. And the reason for it is pretty clear. I'm focused on myself all the time. Yeah. So I just assume everyone else is. Mm-hmm. Failing to realize that they're focused on themselves. So they're thinking, you know, I bet everybody's noticing me. Hmm. I like the spotlight effect. I like knowing about the spotlight effect because, uh, you know, you talked about the sunk cost fallacy, appreciating it as a fallacy, changing your life. Learning about a spotlight effect kind of helped me realize that when I do something embarrassing or screw up, people don't care as much as I I, they, I worry that they do. Right. And I mean, this, this T-shirt example goes back to my own life and your life I'm sure as well but in high school I would get like new cool new clothes or something and be terrified to wear it because I thought everybody yeah. would make fun of me but as I've gotten older and I buy cool new clothes I'm I'm not as worried about that but and on the plus side not not as many people as you would hope would think man you're looking <laughs> sexy today yeah eh, they're they're worried about their own clothes yes that's very true but what this makes me wonder is did you find yourself, I mean, this is more of a, a meta question abstracted from our conversation, but did you get involved or become attracted to studying 
psychology as a a career path because of all this these myriad ways in which it informed you about who you were and your own experiences and allowed you to analyze them in another level of depth no i don't think so <laughs> i i mean you know um what was it the film the I think we all have these narratives uh-huh. about why we do what we do. Yeah. I love the example from the dark night of Heath Ledger's Joker telling you where he got his, how he got his scars and telling the story and telling somebody an entirely different story later on. I think so my narrative for how I came a psychologist is my brother is autistic. And so when I was a teenager, I worked with autistic kids. And then, um, and then when I went to an undergraduate at McGill, I figured I'd become a clinical psychologist and work with kids. And then I bumped into this professor just by accident, John McNamara, and I ended up working with him. And he was a philosopher and it went philosophical issues. And I began to think what he did was really cool. And then I went into graduate school and so on. Mm-hmm. You know? So it just happenstance. Mm-hmm. And then Freud would tell you, of course, that uh, your narrative is all wrong. Everything came from the unconscious. <laughs> and and uh, again, I will give Freud props here, which is um, which is... When, whenever somebody tells you their origin story, you should think bullshit. That's just a story. Hmm. You know, you've probably tried out other stories and you settled on this one. And maybe you believe it now, but it's just a story. Hmm. Well, there is one other fallacy or cognitive bias that I noticed in the book. And this one has to do with framing. The idea is that you could get exactly the same, uh, exactly the same question posed to you, but how it's posed um, affects your your impression of it. How it's how to how the options are framed. So you know, imagine uh, advertising a condom that is promised to be ninety nine percent efficient versus a condom that fails one percent at a time. It's, it's pretty clear which way you're going to go with, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, and some places will argue that this product is 95% fat free as opposed to 5% fat. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and there's a million cases like that. Conleman uh, and Tversky did some really interesting studies where they give people medical decisions to make. And then these, these real two options, but one option is framed in terms of number of lives it would save. So out of 600 people, it will, we know it will save 400 people, uh, but not, not the rest. The other one is pretty much the same option, but it's that out of 600 people, 200 people are going to die. Not more than 200, but 200 people are going to die. It makes a huge difference mm-hmm. for how people uh, do it. I interviewed your Princeton colleague, Tanya Lombroso a while back all about explanations and it was Yeah, really Tanya is incredible. Yeah, and so many... Uh, I mean, the way that we perceive explanations in so many cases depends on the way that they're framed. Uh, one th- one thing that has stuck with me that I found pretty funny is if you throw jargon into an explanation, even if it's non-functional, uh, yeah. we will perceive it as a much better, a much better explanation or much more satisfying. There's all sorts of real world examples. One example I really liked and really struck me was from a study... Um, where they say uh, there are two, there, there's a custody hearing, and you're the judge. So parent A is um, is average in every respect. 
Parent B has some really good points that make them a really good parent, but also some bad points. So, you know, a good point might be exceptionally loving and caring to her children. A bad point might travel a lot. So in one condition, they ask people, um, who would you give custody to? And people say parent B. The, the good points are salient. And then the other group of people, they said, who would you deny custody to? And people say parent B because of the bad points. Now, they can't both be right. They're just the inverse questions. So the answer should be, should be, you know, proportionally adding up to 100%. But they aren't. The framing matters a lot. And people, this is something where people involved in negotiation and advertising and persuasion know a lot about this and will frame things. We'll often take something which is true, but, um, but frame things in a certain way to make it additionally persuasive in the direction you want to take it. Hmm. And I don't know, maybe Tversky and Kahneman averred their own hypothesis as to why we would have this sort of framing bias, but what sort of, are you willing to speculate on, in this one in particular, what sort of heuristic uh, process it's uh, filling in for? Yeah, I think some of the biases we talk about reflect sort of adaptive mechanisms that sometimes go awry. I think the framing effects are a little bit different. I think the framing effects just capture aspects of language comprehension and um, and sort of concept activation. So if I talk about, about failure, 1% failure, you're now thinking, oh, well, now my mind is thinking about failure as opposed to 99% success. I'm thinking about success. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it has a sort of nice story as other things. I think it just takes advantage of, of, of facts about our, our general psychologies. Mm-hmm. You know, one simple boring example of a framing effect is often the order in which information is conveyed is, uh, is, is important. Under some circumstances, for instance, you want to save, if there's something you want the person to focus on, save it for last. Mm-hmm. And that's a framing effect. And it does, it's not very interesting. It just has to do with language comprehension. Mm-hmm. I think in the book you mentioned that there's a very long wikipedia article on cognitive biases and obviously you could fit them all into the book or else it would be significantly longer than it already is and then you already anticipated at the outset but are there any others that we haven't talked about that you find particularly fascinating or amusing I guess the general one is um, that I think matters a lot. It comes under different names, but it's the my side bias. The my and side. It's, and it's a natural bias to, um, to, to interpret information and to focus on things in ways that benefit you and yours. So, um, so Julia Galef actually has a better way of talking about it. She calls it the soldier mindset, where you have an, an, an idea and you want to defeat other arguments, you want to conquer, and you want to do it, as opposed to what she recommends, which is a scout mindset, which is more of a neutral way of looking at things. And there's all sorts of examples of it. Um, here's one which I like. You ask people, you say this to people, um, somebody sues you uh, for something, and uh, the suit is unsuccessful. Uh, should you have to should should they have to pay your legal costs and people say yeah that just makes sense then you ask a bunch of other people suppose you sue somebody 
and the suit's unsuccessful, should you have to pay their legal costs? And people say, no. That's the same question. The general principle is the same. X sues Y, should X, X fail, should X pay legal costs? But if it's framed in your side or, or, or another side, the perception changes accordingly. And there's a million examples out from politics. So a classic study, actually by Jeffrey Cohen, Cohen at Stanford University, um, a, a long time ago, he gave people. I said, "What do you think of this welfare policy?" And described a certain welfare policy. And he had two versions. One is, by American standards, extremely generous. Another one is, by American standards, extremely stingy. He told people either this is from the Democrats or this is from the Republicans. It turns out that that the, the 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 policy itself had very little influence on what people thought about it. If people are Democrat and it's from the Democrats, they think it's a great policy. If they're Democrat and they think it's Republicans, they think it's a terrible policy, and so on. Uh, if if you know we're from all all the political parties, all the permutations, we tend very much to think our side is right, mm. and you know. I think that's a very persuasive bias, particularly in the political realm. Oh, yeah. I mean, so much of our political stagnation clearly results from this phenomenon. And it's an example, I mean, a crucial example where our irrationality trumps our, no pun intended, uh, trumps our rationality and much to our detriment, not just as individuals, but as a civilization or collection of them. So I think that's exactly right from a certain mode of rationality. I think it makes the world worse. It makes the world worse where you apply different standards for your person you like than person you don't like. It, it leads to polarization. It leads to, to stupidity and so on. But, but let me try this out. I think at a local level, it actually is fairly rational. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and because basically, you know, um, you know, we're both liberals, so we, we go to a party of liberals and everything, and um, and all of a sudden somebody says something about, about Trump. And and everybody says, oh, Trump is, that's Trump's terrible. That's a terrible thing. And you say, no, actually, by the standards I would normally neutrally apply, that's actually, I, that Trump is not to be blamed for that. Well, maybe you got it right. We don't like you anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, Um you know, we're we're all conservatives, and and we're talking about Biden, and and everybody else says Biden's just really old and senile. You say, no, actually, I've done the reviews, isn't that old and senile? And nobody likes you anymore. And so the question that we have to ask is, what do you want? If if you want to find the truth, or if you're interested in the world working, at the America working, and so on, the my side bias is a disaster. But if you want to be loved by your side, the my side bias is just the thing. Mm -hmm. This is actually a big problem for me at the moment because in the same spirit that I wanted to ask you for a sober take on psychoanalysis, I mean, I'm, I would like to have more conservative voices on the podcast. But at the same time, I recognize that even though this is in the spirit of rationality and free speech and seeing multiple viewpoints and hopefully arriving at more informed final conclusions, though that's, yeah. I guess, redundant, it will still upset a lot of people and alienate uh, some listeners. But at some point, even though this 
bias is good in the local level, I mean, it has to be um, overwhel- overruled uh, in the, the purpose of intellectual spirit. It's a perfect example. Um, suppose you wanted to bring voices that have a sort of um, unpopular position to take a really hot button issue on trans issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I think from the standpoint of the broader intellectual community, it's very valuable for you to be talking to somebody like that. Just like um, it's very valuable for Joe Rogan, a conservative podcaster, your opposite number in the podcasting game, to um, to to interview somebody who has very liberal attitudes on mm-hmm. trans issues. But it's in neither one of your interests. You would both get people angry at you. It will not benefit yeah. It is interesting. I mean, I admire that tremendously about people like Rogan or your friend Sam, that they'll have people from both sides on the podcast, but even though they ultimately get uh, a lot of hate for it. Yeah. It's complicated. I mean, you could say there, there's a niche for people who do that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. then they have their own tribe, the tribe of the heterodox people who talk to everybody. But- the tribe of the people on the left and the tribe and the people who are on the right are much larger tribes. Mm-hmm. Now, I think at this point, I would like to move on to another of the topics that you, you cover in your book. What I wanted to turn to now was motivation. And yeah. you write that one of your favorite articles in all of psychology uh, comes by way of a psychologist named Edward Thorndike. And what is it that you love so much about this paper of his? So Thorndike is a, if you're an intro psych student, Thorndike's a famous behaviorist. And, um, and, but, but the article I love, which I think was published in the journal Psych Review, a big journal, um, was very pleasingly a-theoretical. And I, I, there's really a story for how he managed to get it published. But it was basically a questionnaire. Hmm. He asked different people. And he was interested in what people like. And, you know, and so, yeah, so one way to figure out what people like is you ask them how much money would you, um, would, 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 would uh, you give me to give this to you? But he did the inverse. He gave a list of, of, of aversive experiences and asked people how much money would I have, would you, what would you need in order to experience this aversive thing? And the examples are wonderful. You know, he had imagined, he talked to me, I said, well, what about your left toe getting that chopped off? What about your ears? Um, what if you had to uh, spit on a picture of, of your mother, spit on a picture of uh, Jesus Christ, spit on a picture of Darwin? Um, what if you had to live in a small cabin in Missouri for a year? What if you had to give up all hope of an afterlife? What if you had to walk in the middle of the day down through Times Square in New York City Without a hat, it was a different time. You know? <laughs> yeah, very different time. So, so uh, and and the answer is amazing, and and it, it tells you what we want, what we worry about. So we don't obviously people don't want to be mutilated, but also people worry about their reputation. So um, so people would, for a sufficient amount of money, uh, eat a, a pound of uh, human flesh. But if you say eating a pound of human flesh, and then they they put a picture of it in the front page of New York Times magazine, uh, New York Times newspaper, sorry, nobody would want to do that. And a million examples of that. My favorite contrast was, um, he asked people, 
how much money would I have to pay you to remove one of your front teeth with a pair of pliers? Mm. I know. This is, how much money, a different question, how much money I have to pay you to kill a cat with your hands? And people want substantially more money for the second one than for the first one. In other words, people are more reluctant to kill a defenseless animal than they are to suffer something which is agonizing and mutilating. And I think that says something about, our, about what we want. I've always been interested in the idea, and this is my, my day job is as a moral psychologist, and I've always been interested in the idea that we have a natural kindness or goodness to us, limited in some extents, but, but, but this is what we possess. And this is a nice demonstration that when you ask people to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, uh, it really matters to them. I, I have a lot of questions about everything you've just said, but one thing that immediately comes to mind is more uh, abstract. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, in your work as a moral psychologist, on what level are you explaining why people are good or kind or why people are bad? Because it's not on a neural level. That's no, not, it's not. That's not your realm of expertise and study. So what is it that you're studying or how, how is it that you're trying to model this? Is it with like little boxes in somebody's mind with like a memory box? And like, I mean, hmm. that's what I remember from AP Psych. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm interested in two levels, which, which intersect, but they aren't uh, the same. One is evolutionary. So what have we evolved to, um, to care about? So you know, one reasonable evolutionary hypothesis is for reasons of kin selection, we've evolved to care about people in our family and close to us uh, as opposed to strangers. Um, there's an evolutionary hypothesis which says we've evolved to punish wrongdoers because there are certain benefits in doing that. And so you have that, and those don't make specific claims about the working, the mental work, either the psychological workings or the, um, the neurological work. It just says some capacity should be present. And you see if it is. And I study babies too. Mm -hmm. So you so one useful thing is you study if it's in babies. And that might suggest that it's the evolutionary reason as opposed to say cultural factor. A second thing I'm interested in though is, um, is, is sort of at the level, the proximate level, level of, of, of your, your motivation. So, um, so... I may ask, for instance, this isn't work that I've that I've done, but it captures the spirit of it. Whether people are sort of common sense utilitarians, where they think what's what's good is that which benefits them, which causes the most pleasure and the least pain out of all the options. And so, psychologists interested in that use artificial problems like trolley problems to distinguish between a utilitarian versus somebody who thinks, oh no. Uh, a life is sacred no matter what or something like that. And I'm interested in those questions too. Well, this actually opens up uh, another, for me, very interesting question because I know that you're, for a psychologist, you're an extremely philosophically minded psychologist. And I think that a major distinction between psychology and philosophy, um, I'll give an example, is that as a psychologist researching motivation, you're much more interested in the facts about what actually motivates people rather than the more normative question of what ought to motivate people. Yeah, that's right. That is right. Okay. I, I think 
I, I, I totally agree, which is it's a, there's two very different types of questions, a normative question, how should we act? And then the descriptive question of how, um, how do we act? Mm-hmm. And, um, and roughly philosophers study the normative and psychologists study the descriptive. Mm-hmm. As you know, uh, the lines get blurred. Right. So one of my collaborators is Josh Nob at, at Yale, who's the founder, I think one of the founders of experimental philosophy. And he's a sharp philosopher who often asks a lot of real questions about how we actually do think about moral problems. Um, and all similarly as a psychologist, I sometimes sort of stumble into normative issues. So right. I wrote against a book called <laughs> I wrote a book called Against Empathy. And you you against empathy, that's a norm that's an, a normative little sentence. <laughs> yeah. Which says, you know, you know, empathy, it, you should be against it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's a that's a normative claim. But the normative claim gets rooted in descriptive claims. So and there's a nice intersection, which is that, well, Consider what you think upon reflection is is the right way to live. And it's a very hard question, but there's some easy, easy ones. You might think for most people, for instance, think that, you know, you shouldn't be racist. That that and but it turns out as if it turns out as descriptive fact, as I argue, that empathy is racist. It makes us leads us to think that the racist decision is right. That's an argument against empathy. So the normative and descriptive tend to blend together. I mean, you're a philosopher. Does that make sense to you? No, definitely makes sense to me. Uh, but returning now to some non-philosophical questions, particularly regarding cutting off one's own ear, I saw okay. that. I saw that. I guess Van Gogh did it for free. Uh, now that I think about it, yes. But yes. I saw that in Thorndike's paper, unless I misread, that people were not willing to take any money to cut off their own ear. So for a lot of things, one of the options is there's not enough money in the world. Yeah. And that and surprised yes, me. I would cut off my own ear, I think, for not not a lot of money. I don't know what I would, maybe like $2 million. I, um, yeah. There are some things you wouldn't do for all the money in the world. Definitely. And and it was actually an interesting contrast. Just, I'm thinking about this for the first time, where where there's some things you wouldn't do for all the money because you reflect upon it, and you think like, suppose it was to murder an innocent person, you might say, no, there's not, you know, there's no money to worry. That's just I I think it'd be wrong to do it. Then there's things where you probably, upon reflection, would um would say, oh, it's reasonable to do it. Um. But you may not have the guts, or I might not have the guts to do it. I might actually not go through with it, not not be able to do it. Hmm. Well, interestingly, by the way, utilitarian might say for a sufficient amount of money, you should be willing to kill an innocent person because all that money could be used to save a thousand lives and so on. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about some, I guess, theories of human motivation, and yeah. one that came up in this chapter that we've been discussing is the predictive processing theory yeah. of the world. How does this work? Um, it's, um, it's, it's a theory which is quite hot in neuroscience and it's very, very interesting. So, um, so to sort of, and it goes against common sense. The common sense theory is, you know, why do you dr- reach for a glass of water? Um, well, because you're thirsty, you believe the water will quench the thirst, so you launch your arm, your hand towards the water. 
the predictive processing theory says that basically what the brain wants to do is make its predictions true. And so the story of going for a glass of water is you predict there's water in your mouth. That's not true. And then you act so as to make your prediction correct. The, the, and, um, and so this is in some way a theory of motor control and action. Now, the way I'm putting it is incredibly abstract, but there are detailed models of motor control and visual, the visual system, which provide some support for, um, for this predictive processing approach. And a lot of this gets into neuroscience uh, controversies, which I'm not equipped to, to compare between. Um, what I do think is, this is kind of a crappy theory of motivation, because in yeah. the end, it doesn't explain why you want to put water in your mouth exactly. instead of putting mud in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in a way, I put it back to it goes back to our original point about falsifiability, which is that that if you could explain everything, you would explain nothing. And so so if you say you know uh, Thorndike found that people and it's true, Thorndike found people w- required quite a bit of money to eat a live cockroach. And so you might say, well, you predict that there's not a live cockroach in your mouth, and you act to respond to that. But of course, if Thorndike found that people love eating live cockroaches, we'll pay you bundle to do it, then you could predict there is a live cockroach in your mouth. So the theory itself doesn't give us any insight into why we want one thing and not another. Yeah, I was I was going to say that uh, based on the way that you described it, it is deficient precisely to the degree that it's meant to inform us about what we actually, in fact, are motivated by or motivated toward. I think that's right. And and I get this critique from uh, uh, Chaz Firestone and a co-author. Uh, they have a wonderful Trends in Cognitive Sciences paper where they make this critique. And the critique, by the way, just to, to connect it to the issues I know you're interested in, is explicitly based on Chomsky's critique of Skinner's verbal behavior, Skin, the yeah. Skinnerian theory and verbal behavior, where Chomsky's critique about Skinner saying this is due to reinforcement and this is due to uh, to stimulus properties, isn't that Skinner's wrong? It's that these terms are so loose and empty they could explain they could explain in quotes they could they they could be consistent with any sort of thing that people do or people say mm. and so it's useless as a theory this is this is purely uh anecdotal, but your former co- colleague at Yale, I guess you're still a professor emeritus there, so maybe he's still your colleague in spirit uh Scott Shapiro. I read in the philosophy department philosophy in law school I read his book i he was a past guest on the podcast and i read his book legality and he wrote that chomsky's takedown of skinner was among the greatest philosophical takedowns of all time and when i talked to chomsky i asked him about this and he said i don't care about skinner i never cared about skinner it was always about quine and then he was gunning for quine yeah Yeah. he, he didn't want to talk about it i was a bit disappointed I it, it is um it, it is one it, I I agree with Shapiro was one of the great intellectual takedowns I I behaviorists were as you might imagine furious at the review and at times they said there were aspects of it which were unfair which Chomsky is blurring together Skinner and other behaviorists who had somewhat different views and and didn't care much about getting Skinner right your story about Quine supports that. You know, mm-hmm. Quine had a very behaviorist theory of, of language use. He was very influenced at, by Skinner. I guess they were all at Harvard at the same time. Yeah. And, did you um, study with Quine now that I, I think about it? 
no, no. I, I, I was at MIT for graduate school okay. and, um, and I took classes with Chomsky actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'd heard that. I was like, oh, wow, and, that's and, so cool. And that was, a oh, it was amazing. He would, uh, he would teach these classes that people would drive from, from quite a distance to attend to a, you know, a fun, and, and then he would just talk about whatever was on his mind. And the thing about Chomsky, which is probably still holds true today is that his speech was sort of, um, wasn't clearly distinguished from his writing. So he would like talk at length about something and then you would read something he'd write the next day. And that would be exactly what he spoke about. Hmm. Well, um, returning though for, to this predictive processing theory and it's, uh, deficiencies or more so it's deficiencies. What does the psychological research tell us that humans do in fact find motivating? And in particular, I'm curious if there is anything that is particularly counterintuitive here. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the intuitive stuff, you know, you didn't have me on your podcast to say that people like like food and drink and, <laughs> really? and, you know, and, yeah. And, and we don't like being, being whaled on and hit. We, we, we like, um, and, you know, and, and then move it up a level. We like, we like when our reputations are good. We like when we're respected. We like when we're loved. And so much of this is, um, is evolutionary psych 101. We like just what you would expect for a creature like us. And, and it just, just reads out of it. And even um, I've been been trying to understand Rene Girard recently, and he talks about you know mimetic desire, which is how we inherit, how we pick up the desires from other people. Uh, but but even that has an evolutionary flavor for a social animal, where it really matters that we're in sync with other people and that and that we're respected and we're loved. That's just the obvious, boring stuff. But people also like sometimes uh, spicy foods and hot saunas. And running marathons and being whipped and all yeah. those cool stuff. And I found that fascinating. And I don't talk yeah. about that that much in psych, but my book before that, The Sweet Spot, looked exactly at a sort of unnatural desires. Like why do we why do we often want pain and suffering? And um and I think that there's different stories behind it to some extent. Some of it is sort of a pleasure hack where, you know, we could expose ourselves to small amounts of pain to get greater amounts of pleasure later on. Some of it is because we want higher order things like meaning and purpose, and those are associated with difficulty and struggle. But it's those compl those interesting uh, motivations, which I just find very exciting. Yeah, it, and this is raises for me another very interesting question. I imagine that you would dispute the the supposition, but it sounds to me like perhaps, I mean, explaining why somebody likes to be whipped might be better done at a neurological level than at the sort of, because I don't, I, I lack the vocabulary to really say exactly what I mean. The more standardly psychological level, uh, because it might, you might be able to make more sense of it as saying, by saying there's some sort of rewiring where, you find something that would typically be conceived of as or perceived of as uncomfortable or unpleasant yeah. as pleasant. And maybe that might be a more satisfactory explanation than some other sort of story you would tell. It's possible. I mean, I really, I, I never sort of asked myself the question, but, but uh, 
I'm not sure there's anything psychologically interesting that's better answered at the neurological level. This is the closest because I think the story, one part of the story for why we like spicy food, say it's a simpler example, does involve contrast and does involve the fact that where uh, some neuroscientists said this, our brains are different engines. We're, we're, we, are respond, we are responsive not to, you know, if you stay in a tub long enough, it all feels the same. But if, if you only pour cold water in it, you'll notice the difference. If it's hot water, you'll notice different. We notice differences. We notice contrasts. And this is the way in which, which pain could be a useful hack because if you have pain and then you have a sudden release from pain, it's often delightful. Mm-hmm. So there's something really good to, to eating really hot curry and drinking some cool beer. That contrast is really nice. And to some extent, the reason why this works has to do properties of our brains. But I would even think that even when brains work very differently, it really is important for any organism like us to be responsive to differences and not, not stasis. Hmm. Well, Can I circle around, which is to say one more motivation, which really interests me, which I do talk about in psych, are moral motivations. And I end a chapter on motivations. These really are puzzles. Some moral motivations are not puzzles. It's not really a huge mystery why we care for our children. You know, our animals like us that don't care for their children, the genes don't go away. So, you know, it's standard natural selection. But you and I care about strangers. We, we, we wouldn't participate in the death of a stranger even were to profit us. We, we, we care. Maybe we care about racism or sexism. We care about, about unfairness, even if the unfairness doesn't affect us. And it's kind of a great mystery why we care about morality, even in cases where, um, where we don't benefit from, uh, from fixing it, from fixing an immoral situation. Hmm. Well, the one, you convinced me <laughs> that that oh. explanation about spice is uh, much more satisfying, at least on a human level than a neurological explanation would have been. So maybe I should modify what I was getting at as the explanations are complementary. It's yes. nice to know that there's a, or nice to see the, the, the physical reason behind something, even if it's not going to be exciting or illuminating in the same way that the psychological explanation will be. So I, I think there's a, there's a deep point here, which is worth emphasizing, which is that I think a lot of the explanation we've been talking about Freud, you know, the effects of talk therapy, um, the workings of rationality, biases, and so on, are best explained at a higher level. And the brain talk doesn't often help. But everything has to be ultimately instantiated in, in the brain. So it has to be complementary. Ultimately, we presumably have a theory that goes all the way down. I think the ex explanatory action happens above the brain, but it has to be consistent with how the brain works. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask about motivations, because this seems like something that is counterintuitive, if my memory serves correctly, but that in many ways, we're more motivated away from things than we are hmm. toward things. So I really, despite my enjoyment of podcasting, I really don't like being up on a stage and uh, giving presentations. And I would do 
a lot, a lot to get out of a presentation, which seems like a very minor trivial thing than well, I, I basically I get I think that's just where I want to leave it. I'm very like yeah. motivated to get away from certain things. I think one of the great truths about psychology is that the bad is more powerful than the good. Hmm. The bad is more of a motivator than the good. Um, you know, people call it talk about this terms of the negativity bias, where uh, we're more drawn to focus on the negative. We're more worried about the negative, and it kind of makes sense. Like, suppose you could, for the next, you know, hour, you can get anything in the world you want. That'd be great. That'd be very, very pleasing. But now suppose for an hour, you could get the worst possible things that you don't want, um, you know, which ultimately I think would end in your fiery death. That'd be really bad. In fact, that would be worse than the good hour would be, would be good, you know. All sorts of good things could happen, but okay, they're good things. But the bad things, which involve like the the horrific death of you and everybody you love, are much worse. And so I think the motivation we have to avoid things is always going to be stronger than the motivation to get things. Hmm. You know, um, and and so so I think that that sort of has a mark on our psychology. Something interesting that just came out there to me was this example that you just described of having everything I want or everything I don't want <laughs> in an hour was extremely powerful. And what jumps out at me though, is that this was a thought experiment. <laughs> and I think of yes. thought experiments as being the fodder of philosophy and not psychology, but you just gave me uh, a very good and compelling uh, thought experiment for psychology. You, you know, the role of thought experiments in psychology is really, is really interesting. Some, sometimes a thought experiment is just a thing if you're interested in thoughts. Like, so if, if I, uh, if I ask you, if I'm interested in whether it's easier to imagine A and B, A or B, and I just ask you, which is easier to imagine, then it's just an experiment having yeah. to do with thoughts. The thought experiment in a philosophical sense, of course, is, is in your imagination, you run an experiment that's thought to reflect on the real world. And, um, and, you know, philosophers have a lot of argument over the extent to which that works, its, li its, its limits, its strengths. But psychologists do this too. So it's actually interesting that the Thorndike thing we're both talking about is a thought experiment, asking people to say, well, if somebody offered, said, we'll give you money to cut off your, how much would you, would you, would you want? And you'd be, a skeptic might say, why should we take so seriously how people answer in the abstract? And I think that's a fair criticism. I think in the end, Thorndike's work is interesting, but it's possible, going back even to Freud, that you're wrong. True story. Um, I was, I was uh, a long time ago, I was at the Peabody Natural History Museum in New Haven with my young son, and we were watching a... a, a, a a sort of exhibition on edible insects. This guy would cook up insects with, with oil and tell us stories about it. People eat insects and so on. And then, and he would cook it up. And I remember this many, many years ago. He said, bug appetite, which is like, well, it's clever. It sort of stuck me. Mm -hmm. And then he put them in little cups, little cricket, and then some like spices. And he said, who wants some? 
And I immediately get up because I said, it smelled, it smelled good actually. And I went up to, and then I get there and I'm like, no, I can't do it. I ran a thought experiment in my seat. I will eat a cricket. If you ask me, I would say, I will eat a cricket for free. I would be great. Mm-hmm. And then I got there and I was wrong. So sometimes we could be wrong. Yeah. No, that that's interesting because thought experiments in philosophy can be much more definitive in a way. I mean, if you if you find some very powerful, logically derived uh, conclusion in your thought experiment, yes. you might want to keep it. But in psychology, I mean, nothing's going to pass muster unless it's been t- tested. Yes. Uh, but again, um, psychologists do this presumably knowingly where they they do an experiment. They do a testable experiment on something, but they're basically asking their subjects to do a thought experiment and they're trying to draw conclusions, not on the intuition. So Thorndike wasn't really interested in what right. people would imagine, but on the on the thing that the experiment applies to. So the last thing, I mean this is this has been terrific, but the the last thing that I wanted to ask you about because I just saw, I think a couple of days ago, that your teacher, Susan Carey, who supervised your thesis at Harvard, just officially retired. And I know that she's an absolute legend in psychology. I mean, so many psychologists whose pages I look at list her as their advisor. And I'm sure talking about her work at length would, I mean, totally (laughs) take weeks or months. But... I'd love to hear just a bit about a couple of the impacts she's had on the field and what working with her was like before we finish. Yeah, Susan is ex- extraordinary. Um, she's one of the, the, as you put it, one of the great advisors in developmental uh, psychology and in cognitive science, cognitive science more generally, and um, absolutely brilliant, uh, incredibly rich uh body of knowledge and very cool to work with, very supportive. I, I worked for quite a while ago, just when she was sort of, uh, before she kind of reached her, her developing level of fame, but she was always brilliant. And I, she worked on so many things, but what she's best known for, I think, is her, is her theory of conceptual change. Her theory of what the difference is between the mind of a two-year-old and the mind of a five-year-old and the mind of a 10-year-old and the mind of an adult. And her argument, to put it sort of in the most general way possible, was very influenced by her MIT colleague, Thomas Thomas Kuhn. Uh, so, so Kuhn talked about, you know, in spoke the structure of scientific revolutions, talked about, you know, scientists of the Newtonian era and of, the Einstein, of Einstein's era, not like one discovering more than the other or refuting the other, but of seeing the world in dramatically different ways, paradigms, they were called. And Susan saw conceptual change in children as akin to paradigm shifts in scientists. Where, And this ended up making some very interesting claims about, um, about conceptual structure. I think your belief that is that it was sort of a holistic theory of concepts where concepts got their meaning through connections with other concepts. And this, uh, and this put her at odds. You talked before about philosophy and psychology. She was deeply immersed, put her at odds with Jerry Fodor, 
Mm. Uh, rather not than, somebody you want to be at odds with. No, not somebody. And I, and I, I, I watched the debate between the two of them, and it was, uh, it was something. It was, uh, and um, put her. Uh, and this work, I think, is the most theoretically developed, most really deeply interesting work. And I think, and I think, largely, it's right. I think, I think, just just to take away the fancy stuff. Um, so often, young kids are, are just. You could understand what's going on in the minds of young kids. They have different theories of the world than I do. They're kind of weird theories sometimes. But it's not like Piaget said where they are sort of stupider adults. And it's not like um, the empiricists say that they just have less knowledge. It's not like the nativists say where all the knowledge is inborn and just needs to be triggered. It's rather sort of a very different way of looking at things. Hmm. Well... Um, Paul, this has been, I mean, I often I'll schedule interviews where I will ask beforehand, you know, can we do sort of an introductory episode to set theory or Mariology or something? And that's not what we discussed at all. We said we would discuss this book, but this has been a tremendous introduction to a fragment of human psychology. And I'm so thankful for your generosity and taking the time to talk with me about it. Well, it's mutual. This was this was a huge amount of fun. Have me back. Hold on, geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.